Welcome to the Rhythms Podcast. I'm Brian Wise, editor of the magazine. This week, I'm joined by Michael Goldberg, contributor to Rhythms, founder of the Addicted to Noise website and renowned author in his own right, to talk with Michael Balfour about his new memoir, When Can I Fly? The Sleepers, Tuxedo Moon and Beyond, written with Will York. It's published on Hozak Books. Balfour and his Bay Area-based bands, The Sleepers and Tuxedo Moon, were mainstays of the San Francisco punk and post-punk scenes of the late 70s and early 80s. The band was made up of vocalist, lyricist Ricky Williams, guitarist Balfour, bassist Paul Draper and drummer Tim Mooney. By 1978, the Sleepers were one of the top bands in San Francisco's burgeoning punk scene. They played the Mabuhe Gardens, one of the city's top venues, numerous times, opening for suicide and crime, before headlining other gigs. In early 1978, the Sleepers recorded their acclaimed first EP and seemed set to make a mark as a major group, as punk morphed into post-punk, and Balfour was also playing and recording with the more arty fellow San Francisco underground band Tuxedo Moon. But by the end of 78, Balfour had left both bands, fled the United States and moved between Toronto, New York, Belgium and San Francisco, occasionally recording and performing with Tuxedo Moon and a revamped Sleepers. Before we talk to Michael Belfer and he tells us his story, here's a little of the song that gave the book its title, When Can I Fly, from the Painless Nights album released in 1981. <laughs> After one of the sleeper songs, yes. why did why did you call it "When Can You Fly"? Well, I thought it was kind of ironic the way my uh, life has been. You know, I've been so close to like having being in projects that were about to explode and become like over the top successful, m- more successful than I could even imagine. Right, but it never happened. You know, time after time, there was always some weird reason. Um, you know, like when I was signed to Geffen Records. Our manager left his wife for Courtney Love. And so all of a sudden, everybody on the label turned against him, including Courtney. She even turned against him. And so while he was battling all that crap, we just fell fell through the cracks. Absolutely. And we had songs on the radio and, you know, things were going quite well at that point. Instead, they promoted a band that used to open for us sometimes. I can't even remember their names. They were so bland. I, I... I just couldn't believe it. And the manager, okay, we were managed by Bill Graham. 
if if you know who that is. Michael, yeah, you know who that is. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Okay. And um, so we were managed by Will, Bill Graham. And I had this kind of junior manager who didn't really know a lot about the music business. And so once I got signed up with Bill Graham, I was able to use their offices, you know, to go in and, and try to conduct some business. And so I was, uh, I started arranging for endorsements from all these companies whose products I wanted to use, you know, like there was this cable company called MIT Cables and their cables were like 125 bucks each. But I called them up and they looked us up. We sent them, Bill Graham would send them a promo like a good management agency should do. And when they listened to the songs on the radio, it was like, oh, I've heard that song. Yeah, yeah, let's, um, you know, let's do something with them. So it was because of the ra- the success on the radio that I was able to parlay all these uh, endorsements, right? <laughs> I mean, before I knew it, boxes of monster cable were showing up <laughs> on my front door, you know? <laughs> so anyways, this guy, he was our manager. He studied what I was doing, including what producer I was going for to produce the next Black Lab album. And my stupid lead singer fired Bill Graham, left, and Jay Wilson took all the whole formula that I had laid out right down to the to the um, engineer that I was after. And he applied it to this other band that he was managing. And they they went like multi quadruple platinum. What the fuck was their names? Well, so so Black Lab, that was a later group that you were that you had. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. just, you asked about when yeah. can I fly? Yeah. And so I was trying to give you like the most right. glaring example why I would choose to use that title. Michael, it seems to be a familiar story with bands of that era, doesn't it? You hear a lot of those stories because um, I don't think uh, management practices were quite uh, what oh, they, they just, might be today. They were just scandalous, man. Scandalous. So after after Bill Graham, who was a very, you know, company of integrity and honest management, and very qualified, they had a lot of experience, you know, they, they did Rolling Stones tours and, you know, things like that. They were very, very experienced. We went with this guy. He used to be Aerosmith's Coke dealer. Not that I'm bitter or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like it. No, well, no. In, in your book... I thought your observation that bands in San Francisco, punk bands in the late 70s, for the most part, did not fit what most people today think of as punk. In contrast, oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Can you yeah. kind of talk a little bit about that? And we're talking, I mean, at the beginning of the of the San Francisco punk scene, we're talking about, in addition to the, the Sleepers, a band called Crime, that Sonic Youth laid, laid, eventually covered one of their songs, uh, the Avengers, um, who are still around, the, the yeah, Nuns. Yeah, they're still the, around. The Nuns. I played in the nuns. I didn't talk about that much in the book. I I forgot about that chapter of my life. Anyways, go on. I'm sorry. And then the the mutants and then negative trend and then flipper. Those were all kind of kind of key bands uh, in the the early days. And and they were all very different. And can you can you just kind of elaborate on on that a little bit and give a little sense of the scene and all that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the scene inherited the vibe of the beatnik era you know which which predecessed the 70s and the reason i say that i mean look at witness uh, bruce connor the photographer you know who had sure. had this beatnik period past and he he was slumming it he was going to the mabuhe and taking pictures of the sleepers and unfortunately i i lost all the copies he gave me because i imagine they're quite valuable now anyways the vibe of, oh. of san francisco it was well can you i wanted to do like a parallel description between the 
beatnik era and us. And you know how in the beatnik era, everybody was very individual. You know, you had um, Ginsburg and then you had uh, Neil Cassidy and just all these different characters, you know, sure. who, were, who were very much expressing themselves. And that current seemed to come through San Francisco. And the first thing I noticed when we went down to play in Los Angeles, all the bands were emulating what was going on in England. You know, like they look to England. It's like, oh, they listen to Sex Pistols and The Clash. Oh, this is what punk is. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so they started to play it. Meanwhile, we had just been writing our own songs um, out of improvisations and other weird methods that we had for, for putting songs together. And... Uh, Eventually, we had enough songs to go up to the city and play. Um, I don't think I'm answering your question. <laughs> well, okay. So when you got up to San Francisco, I mean, you and you started playing at the Mabue Gardens, which right. was which was the I mean, basically the first place where punk rock bands could play in San Francisco was yes. the Mabue Gardens. Yeah, and that's where all these that's bands. Where, yeah, yeah, that's where all these bands. Yeah, and then the way that. Dirk, Dirk Dirksen, right, who was the impresario of the whole gig, Dirk had this method for booking the bands where one day out of the month he would he would serve up, because Mabuhe had a kitchen, I don't know if you knew that, and he would serve up uh, big bowls of chow mein and cans of Budweiser. And so that got everybody over there, you know. <laughs> we were all always the, All hungry. the musicians. All the musicians. musicians, yeah. And so that's how I met Tuxedo Moon, as well as, you know, the mutants and, and definitely Negative Trend. I met them. I met Will Will Shatter, like, almost right away when I started coming up to San Francisco. And we remained really good friends all throughout. And Will, Will ended up being um, one of the one of the key guys in Flipper. Oh, absolutely. He, he found the singer. He... He had the rhythm section all in place. Um, no, what am I talking about? He was the bass player. Um, <laughs> well, didn't they both and, play bass? Didn't him and Bruce Luce sort of alternate bass sometimes? Um, I'm not aware of that, but oh. you know, we, then we had Ted Falcone on guitar, and like he was an aberration, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I actually recorded them when I had a recording studio over in Berkeley. I made some recordings for Flipper. Um, at that time, they were doing these Cleopatra Records uh, cover songs. You know, you know. Have you ever seen those? It'll be like, uh, you know, uh, Weezer does the Scorpions, <laughs> Flipper playing. Um, let's see, what did they cover? Uh, oh, ACDC, <laughs> and um, it was just amazing to record Ted. He sounded like a locomotive that had gone off the rails and there were just sparks flying everywhere. And he went off the rails and he just started crashing through building after building after building. That was Falcone. Yeah, he was, how... he was a very unusual guitar player. Yes. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. I, I, I've always been good friends with Ted. He's a really great person. But he's had a hard time, really hard time. He got beaten up so really badly. He ended up in the hospital for months. This gang of kids in Oakland. Do no. you know this story? No, no, no. Now it's, anyways, it's kind of a well, side, but 
You're listening to a Rhythms Podcast with Michael Goldberg and Brian Wise talking to Michael Belfer of The Sleepers and Tuxedo Moon. We'll continue our conversation after we hear another track from The Sleepers. This is the song Mirror, released as a single back in 1980 and also available on the compilation album The Less an Object, released in write a memoir about your basically your music years well people had been bugging me for years to write a book and i started to witness the fact that nobody else from the scene was putting out anything you know in terms of like a book about about the scene about that time you know i've gotten calls from friends who i haven't heard from in over 20 years thanking me for describing the scene and everything that went on in it really well and and, and, and for bringing in the right characters into into my book and we're that talking was, we're talking about like, like 77 78 79 80 mm-hmm. that kind of that period 81 yeah. and then and then it was over hey michael in that mid 70 period I, I was actually living in london sort of when the whole punk thing happened there oh, yeah. okay. and of course that you know malcolm mclaren went to new york and saw what was going on there and in the sort of early, the mid 70s. And I always thought of those New York bands that were there, that they were a hell of a lot yeah. more musical than the musicians they inspired in in London and, and in England. Was that the same in oh. San Francisco? Was it? Was it? Yes, yes. The, the musicianship, sort of yeah, the musicianship was like a lot better. And like, look at the mutants. The songwriting was really good. Yeah, we were all striving for, you know, the best quality possible, I think, in terms of like what we were writing. And um, I know I was just so excited to, to start recording because it was something I dreamed about uh, since I was like, you know, seven or eight years old. I was just fascinated with how records were made and, and mostly the sounds that I would hear in, in these certain songs, you know, sounds that I, I had no idea how it was made. It's just like with Jimi Hendrix. Jimmy, I, Jimi Hendrix was the first uh, record, really, that I got exposed to. And that album, Are You Experienced? I, I played it till the grooves wore off. And I always knew that that was going to be a timeless piece of work, you know? He set a very high standard. He set the bar very high, Hendrix did. So we looked to, we looked to more of the psychedelic artists that had been floating around San Francisco. I just think that that whole vibe, it came back through the punk scene now. Whereas Los Angeles... I mean, I don't know. What do they have in the in the seventies or sixties? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. But one of my favorite eras of music from California is that early period in the in the sort well the mid eighties 
with you know bands like the Blasters and X and the Long Riders and uh, Lost Lobos well, and all true. that sort of thing, which came along much later than when, when that we're the era that we're talking about. So it was kind of a different thing, wasn't it? But I'm wondering, yeah. I'm wondering how yeah. much support did you get from or exposure did you get from radio? Because in America, you're lucky to have the whole college radio. Oh, none, thing. none, none, zero, none, never. <laughs> Never. Our music was never played on the radio. It was, it was, um, you know, but we did, we saved, we played gigs and we saved up our money and we went into a couple different recording studios and we produced the first EP, which I just got a box of in the mail from some mysterious. Well, did, did the, did like KUSF, which was like the college station in San Francisco, did they play the sleepers? (laughs) They might've and, and, and KFGC down at, that was Foothill junior college radio station. They might have played us maybe like after the whole thing was over, you know, further into the eighties. I know that they had some pretty radical radio shows and, they glommed onto a lot of things that were coming out of England in the mid to late 80s, like Throbbing Gristle became like a, a, a real standard band that was like going through KFCC a lot. It was weird because um, you guys headlined at the Mabue and you, you had lots of fans at the Mabue, but during that whole whole period of, of 78, 79, 80, basically major labels as far as I can recall, didn't sign any band, any punk bands in San Francisco. And I think well, that was be- because they had a, they had signed all these bands in New, New York yeah. and none of those had made it at that point. Maybe, maybe Patty Smith, yeah. but pay it, you know, with, because the night, but I'm not sure that might've been a little bit later, but so then they were like, they didn't want to sign punk bands. Yeah. I mean, witness Howie Klein, right. Who had been slumming it in the scene. Like from the beginning, you know, I, I used to go to Aquarius Records on Castro Street to find the latest uh, singles, you know, especially Perubu. We were all really huge fans of Perubu. And so we waited very excitedly for, for each of the singles to come out, you know. And then finally they put out that Data Panic Near Zero EP. That was just amazing. But Howie was always there in the record store, like staring at you, but like from from a few aisles over, you know, never introducing himself and just sort of being this fidgety guy with a black leather motorcycle jacket, you know. Do you remember Howie? Oh, yeah, no, I know Howie. Okay. I, know Howie. I mean, he ended up, Howie ended up being the president of Reprise Records. I mean, right, well, but we had no would... idea that he had, he had already had a background in the music business, you know, and yeah. he was just sort of hanging out and he used to come to every sleeper show and he would stand right in the front and just stare at us kind of made me nervous sometimes i I just had to like ignore him (laughs) he was just so weird (laughs) i'm surprised there's not more pictures uh, where you look in the audience and there's howie standing there you know but he was always a really big fan of sleepers and then he started that label 415 records uh in which he proceeded to sign all the bands that had nothing to do with the scene and kind of make it out like four and five records was like uh, like a San Francisco scene record label, right? Well, he did put out a nuns a nuns. Uh, they put out a nuns record. Oh, he did. Uh, yeah, um, he put out and he put out a, a mutant single. I mean, he put out some stuff, but he was um, you know he he was looking he to, to ha- have to have commercial records. And, yeah, uh, so I mean, he was looking more to like what was her name? That girl. 
Oh, yeah, like Romeo Void. They put out Romeo Void and had a big hit with Never Say Never. Mm. Not not just Romeo Void. Who was the oh, other one? Pearl Harbor. Yes, Pearl yeah. Harbor and the Explosions. And those were all like ringers, like the Stench Brothers. You know, those guys were like studio musicians. I'd never seen them once at the Mabuhe. They didn't come out of that scene at all. And what was who was the other band we just said? Romeo oh, Void. Romeo Void. Romeo Void. I used to work with Romeo Void and the guitar player, Peter would get these gigs producing other bands and he really didn't know what he was doing. So he invited me to come along. And um, did you ever get to meet Tom Mallon? Um, yes. I met him the once or twice. Yeah. The engineer. Yeah. So we that's where we were doing all of our recording and producing of other bands. Um, and then, of course, Ben Bossy joined the Sleepers, you know, in, right. in, in, the, in the end, in the final iteration of the band. Hey, Michael, you, you said that it kind of all ended in the early 80s. What what led to that? What led to what? I'm sorry? The, the end of the whole punk scene there that you, you said ended in the sort of 1981 or just after that. Well, honestly, I think what it was is that meth came in really strong around 81. I mean, it was still around in the 70s, but something exploded. And then there were all these bands that came out of the vats. Do you remember that, Michael? Yes, there was this. It was there was a this was American a can company, um, huge industrial building warehouse in South San Francisco, and all these punk bands, like like later generation punk bands, like a band called Millions of Dead Cops, MDC, and yeah, MDC, and others, right? Exactly. I was were, gonna cite I was going to cite MDC as an example of like what happened in '81, MDC, and then that. Uh, foreshadowed a whole scene of like, what they called hardcore, right? Yes. And I couldn't stand it. And so that's when I started going to New York and back to Toronto and and then finally ended up in, in Brussels in 1983. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that happened was, I mean, these bands hadn't, I mean, they, they'd had a certain level of success, but then they couldn't go beyond that and so yes, then there like were, yeah there were strange barriers that were in place you know bill graham <laughs> going back to bill graham again he was adamant that his booking deal would have nothing to do with the punk scene he had this image in his head of a bunch of stupid teenagers who who didn't know how to play their instruments and they were just getting up there and yelling and making a lot of noise. That was Bill Graham's interpretation of the punk scene. And so he had instructed all of his minions. Do, do you remember Ken uh, Ken Friedman? Yeah. Friedman, you know, was booking um the old Waldorf and and then um and then they started doing that stuff at the cinema theater on Martin Street. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. And I got to open for the Simple Minds and uh, New Order at one of those shows. That was really great. That was the first time New Order came ever came to the United States. It was right yes. after Joy Division had you know broken up because right Ian Curtis had had yeah. had killed himself and yeah we were all excited for Joy Division to come to America and Rough Trade had even printed up some posters because they had booked shows for them and the Sleepers were getting on the bills. I was really excited about that, but it just, it never, obviously he committed suicide and then that was it. It was over. Yeah. So it just, yeah, it, it just reached, I mean, the Avengers broke up, 
I mean, the nuns, I think, broke up or split up. Oh, or, yeah, dissolved. I mean, you know, Alejandro went, started uh, the True Believers. Remember mm-hmm. that? And the guys in the Dills went on to do um, like a country rock band. What was that band yeah, they well, had? That was the True Believers, right. Oh, it was okay. Alejandro with the guys from Dills and John Silver's on drums who looked like a Dill. Do you remember the, how the Dills all looked like they were brothers? Yeah. yeah. Well, Chip and Tony were brothers, right? But John Silver's the drummer they found. He looked like he had to be one of their brothers. And they were all super tall very handsome they were a very striking band but yeah, they were I just mean, like Im- Im- imitating the clash don't you think yeah mm. um so i mean another problem in the san francisco punk scene was heroin um yes it was and, and uh, i can give you a good um, synopsis on that whole deal it was tied into the fall of the shah in iran many of the um followers of the shah Oh, is everybody still there? Yeah. 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 No. Okay. Where are you, Brian? I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, no, but I mean, how come we can't see you? Can you uh, see us? I've got a Mac Mini and I haven't got a camera attached, but I can see you. Oh, oh, oh. Say no more. Yeah. But can you see us? I can see you perfectly, yeah. Oh, okay. Great, great. I wish I could take the oxygen off, but I can't. Don't worry about Anyways, it. where'd you go? There you are. Yeah. So, so you were saying it was the fall of uh, the Shah of Iran. Oh, right, the fall of the Shah of Iran, and so all the super wealthy Iranians who fled the country converted their gold and diamonds into uh, heroin and brought it to America. And San Francisco was flooded with Persian heroin, which was the most exquisite drug you could ever imagine doing. I mean had nothing to do with Mexican tar. It was just like a completely different drug. And that flooded the scene. You're right. And it, it messed a lot of us up. And some of us, you know, like I got away when I went to Brussels, you know, I got out of the country. It was like I wanted to get as far away from San Francisco as I could. And it was it just so happened that Winston Tong invited me to come with him back to Brussels. And he, Winston really talked it up, like how wonderful it was going to be and blah, blah, blah. And I was excited to go to Europe and, and work with them again. I this was, was this was with Tuxedo Moon. Yeah, with Tuxedo Moon. I was in a really good state. And yeah, it was 1983. And it, it seemed like a great thing to do, to go go to Europe and rejoin them. And so I, I got to do a really nice tour with them of all over France. And we would play at those uh, Maison de Culture, you know, cultural centers, like in every mm-hmm. town around France. They all have one. Oh, wow. And so they booked Tuxedo Moon almost like a theatrical show, if yeah. you will, you know, because Winston Tong was doing stuff with his puppets and he had I mean, this whole Frankie and Johnny thing that he did. I mean, Tuxedo go- Moon were a very experimental band, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I liked, I liked what they were doing by the time they got to Europe and especially um, the violin player, Blaine Renegar. And Blaine and I were always, we always hit it off. Yeah, I don't want to say anything disparaging about the and, other guys. It and, was a great and, band to be in, and it was so much fun touring France. Every show we would play, the the like mayor of the town would invite us back to his chateau usually for dinner, and we would go and have these like ten hour long dinners in these chateaus, and they would feature all the regional foods of every part of France. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> And then finally, I got to meet Jean-Pierre Tumel. You know who, who um, Sordide Santimentel was? I don't. No, no I don't. Oh, 
Okay. That was the first label put out Joy Division, I believe, before Factory Records. This guy, Jean-Pierre Tourmel, he was actually an atomic scientist in France. He worked on like atomic energy plants. But in his spare time, he was a record collector. And so when we played um, Rouen, which is where he lives, he was so excited. And he, he, he somehow he, we got paired with the Virgin Prunes. You remember that band? Yeah. Yeah. And we played we played some really great shows in, in Verlon. And then Termel took us kind of under his wing. and He took us home to make a big dinner for us. And while I was there, I was like looking around. He had a, his whole wall w- was vinyl. And I was just sort of glancing at it. And he came up to me and said, I have every one of your records. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> he goes, the sleepers. I love the sleepers. I wanted to do a sardine sentimental with the sleepers. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me, man. We love your label. Do you remember Joy Division put out Atmosphere backed with Dead Souls? And it came out in a magazine form, like a small pamphlet form. And this guy, Lulu Picasso, did the paintings of the covers. Wow. You never seen it? No, I never saw those. Wow. Um, I mean, they were gorgeous. All the records that Sordid Sentimental made were gorgeous. And he, I think he continued, if he's still alive, he's probably continuing to release things once in a while. I had a Psychic TV CD that was on his label. Psychic TV, boy. There's, a, there's an interesting project. Yeah, anyways, I'm sorry, I digress. A couple of other things. You yeah. in your in your book, you you said that um, you somehow ran into a vice president at one of the Disney record labels. Oh yes, yes. So yeah. Talk about yeah. just that. That was pretty funny. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. I forget how I met him. Oh, I know him. I met him through David Bianco. Once I started working with Dave Bianco in the recording studio, um, I started meeting like all these really historic geniuses from the music industry. And this guy was one of them. And he had become the vice president of Disney. It was the same label that was putting out Queen. So whatever that label was, that was the label that he was vice president at. But once we met, we really hit it off. And he started to invite me out to lunch every week. And he knew where all these incredibly exotic Thai restaurants were out in the San Fernando Valley. And it was just amazing. We'd go out for lunch to all these different restaurants. And and he started telling me about his wife and how his wife was like this huge sleepers fan. And then he just pulled me aside and and said, you know, I got to tell you, Seventh World is like, that was like the pinnacle of American garage rock. (laughs) Nothing has, nothing has surpassed it. (laughs) I I could not believe that he held that opinion. I was like, are you kidding me? Wow. What did we do back then? We We weren't paying attention to anything. We were just improvising our whole way through. You're listening to a Rhythms podcast, I'm Brian Wise. I'm with Michael Goldberg talking to Michael Belfer of The Sleepers and Tuxedo Moon about Michael's memoir, When Can I Fly? Let's continue with a little bit more music, this time from Tuxedo Moon, from the album Half Mute, Scream With A View and Midnight Stroll, and we'll return to our conversation. Thank you. 
the sleepers um you know didn't record a lot but you did put out the five songs on ep the seventh world ep and right. then, a, then a single and then um you did the uh you know the album painless nights yeah. Yeah. and the music on all those recordings mm-hmm. is is really great i mean it's it's fantastic i mean and it and it does it evolves i mean on the on the ep and i love the songs on that ep it's sort of more <laughs> it, it's more um i guess sort of kind of rocking a, a rocking sort of raw punk sort of a thing yeah but, but then by the time you get into the painless nights album there's there's some really ethereal things and it's it's just sort of the you've added like more sort of depth and reverb to um to ricky williams voice and yes, um yes. and it's uh so it's kind of evolved into um it still sounds very sleepers but it's not like you're just you're not repeating yourself and it seemed like with that band you didn't repeat yourself uh else no I mean, that was important uh, yes yes it was and who knows if if only somebody would have stepped forward to give us just a little bit of support what might have happened you know what might have happened um, well you know the thing is you know and this is something that the, the story that your book tells and which um i think brian brought up earlier you know the fact that you were so close to to sort of financial popular success but it didn't right. happen but the thing is from a creative <laughs> standpoint at least from my perspective you were a total success i mean because here we are 40 years later we're talking about those sleepers records they were just the single was just or the ep was just you know re-released on vinyl the you know you you had the um you know everything was collected on the uh, a compilation called the lesson object yes um, right the, right and that came out in the in the seven no i'm sorry in the 90s that came out in the 90s and hopefully you'll have that music available again soon. And so it just seems like from a creative standpoint, and, you know, now you've got a book out that tells us, tells the story that, um, you know, I mean, it's all how one looks at things, you know? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm loving to hear your perspective on things. It, it, it's helpful for me, you know, because uh, I'm very far away from everything, you know, and with COVID-19, um, we've become even more isolated, but, uh, I'm yet to make any really significant musical connections here in Boise. It's been kind of frustrating, but I continue to play. Cool. Let me show you, I'll show you my new guitar. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. Let's see. Can you see that? Mm. Oh, nice. And I want you're a left-handed guitar player. Absolutely. There's not a lot of left-handed guitar players. Do you think that that made any sort of a difference in terms of um, your, the, you know, your sound? Yes. And- yes, I do. I do. Did you know that we were all left-handed except the bass player? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the bass player was like, he was the most, like, his personality didn't really meld. Tim and Ricky and me, we were just like a, a hoot. I mean, it was just like this rolling party when we'd all get together. I mean, but then also very creative at the same time, you know? I think it's because the bass player was older. He was the oldest one in the band, you know? He was an old guy. I think he was 25. <laughs> <laughs> and how old were you guys? How old were you when you started in the Sleepers? 17. Wow. I washed dishes for... Over a year and a half, saving up to buy my last Paul, and um, 
that's when I made the decision that I was going to pursue music professionally. I thought, you can't buy a left-handed Gibson Les Paul Custom and just sit around the house, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, at least to my way of thinking. Also, I had this weird feeling that if you couldn't make it to New York by the time you were 18 and, and put some kind of dent in it, you should probably just drop it and forget it. <laughs> so I was very excited to make it to New York when I was 18 and got to play with some really great people. I mostly um, became, well, what were they called? The Golden Palominos, something like that. Yeah. Um, mm. And then John Lurie, he actually came and toured with Blaine and I in Europe. Uh, Lounge Lizards, that band. The Lounge Lizards, how could I forget? And then Ardo started DNA. Do you remember that version of the, the band they called itself DNA? Yeah, I remember DNA. Mm -hmm. Do you remember who the bass player was? I don't. He was the bass player from Perubu, who played oh, wow. on 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Final Solution. His name's Tim. His last name will come to me. And then the drummer... Uh, in DNA was Ikawe More, who is a, a really successful Japanese performance artist. And Ikawe's done a lot of things. And John Zorn picked them up and got behind them and supported that band. And then Brian Eno came in and produced them during that whole no wave scene, you know? Yeah. DNA were, I always thought was super cool. And being such a big Perugu fan, you know, it was amazing to meet the bass player from that original from those original sing singles, you know, and, and then the sleepers played with DNA constantly when they would, whenever they come to San Francisco, it, we'd get paired with them. And then in New York, they opened for us at the mud club, I think. Yeah, boy, those are really interesting times. Mm. So, so one last, last thing, which is, I mean, how has it been having, having a book out? Well, it's been great, actually, because, I, well, I've been meeting people like you again, you know. I don't know that we ever really knew each other very well back in the scene, but I've, I've certainly have been aware of you, like, all these years because you're a very successful journalist. And Stephen Fisk, the producer from Seattle, are you, are you familiar uh -huh. with him? Uh-huh. Yeah. He, he, read, he got my book and read it and then reached out to contact me. And so him and I have become really good friends. And we're, we're talking all the time. We're talking about trying to do something together. And then That'd who else? That'd be fantastic. Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and so things like that have been happening. And it's really given my life some great new focus and, and, and exciting possibilities, you know, for the present. So yeah, it'd be great uh, if you were if you were making some some new music. That would be great to hear. Well, I have been. I've been working yeah. on new music. I'm just too lazy to go back into my studio and record it. I just <laughs> I kind of improvise and noodle around here in the living room watching TV. But really, when I I do record it on my iPhone, so I have all these like memos that are um, recordings. The iPhone is actually it's pretty good recorder, amazingly. Well, maybe you'll. Maybe, do you think you'll may, might do something with Steve Fisk? Because that would be very cool. I hope so. I really yeah. hope so. Yeah. So that's been, you know, as a result of the book. So things like that have been happening. It's been very positive. Great to talk to you. Thanks for uh, joining us, and it's been fascinating for me as a bit of an outsider to hear you talking about that scene and all those bands and some of these legendary venues that uh, I've only heard about sort of from in interviews and that oh that's great well i'm so glad i was able to share stuff with you okay thanks michael thanks michael yeah. and michael 
been great right. to talk to you. Thanks. Good to catch up. Titled Everything You Want by Tuxedo Moon, released on the Pinheads on the Move album from 1987. And you've been listening to a podcast featuring Michael Balfour of Tuxedo Moon and The Sleepers in conversation with Michael Goldberg and myself. Michael Balfour's book is titled When Can I Fly? It's published through Hozak Books. I hope you've enjoyed the Rhythms podcast this week. I'll be back next week with another one. And if you want to check out the magazine, you can do so at rhythms.com.au. I'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.